Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're all having a great week and getting set for another beautiful weekend here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, and I'm thrilled to once again bring you another exciting edition of our content platform, the Hall Call Interview Series. Before we get started, as always, I'd like to thank our sponsors who help bring us programs like Hall Call, Priority Automotive, Optima Health, the Beck Foundation, White Claw Hard Seltzer, Hamilton Realty, Davcon Inc., Priority Auto Sports Radio 94.1, and Davis Business Appraisers. Thank you to them for their support of Hall Call and the Hall of Fame. Well, today's Hall Call is going to be another look back at the life and career of 2008 inductee Jerome Kersey. Kersey, a native of Clarksville, Virginia, on the south side, starred at what was then Longwood College in the early 1980s before a 17-year career in the NBA, primarily with the Portland Trailblazers. In 2015, Kersey passed away unexpectedly from a pulmonary embolism caused by a blood clot. And while his life ended too soon, his impact has been brought to life by the book, Jerome Kersey, Overcoming the Odds by author Carrie Eggers. While we never got the opportunity to have Jerome on Hall Call, today we are joined by two people who saw the impact Kersey had on those he, who, came, who he came in contact with. First up, we have Ron Brown from Dementi Publishing and a 1984 Longwood College alum. And we are also joined by another Lancer, Brian Kersey, who currently serves as Director of Officiating for the Atlantic Coast Conference and is the son of former NBA referee and 2012 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee, Jess Kersey. So with all of that, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. First of Thanks, all, Will, for having us. I have to preface it by saying Jerome and I are not related at all. <laughs> we, we do have to get that, we do have to get that out <laughs> good way to kick it off we were joined in the hip but we, we we're not related i did tell everybody my dad traveled a lot but you know we didn't go too deep in that conversation that's right yeah i, I, I can especially if you're reading the book as as i have it Absolutely. in my hand right here if you can see it through there yeah. uh if you're reading the book and you don't and you're just seeing names and not that it, it's right. probably a good qualifier to put out exactly <laughs> Well, wonderful. Well, Ron, I'll go ahead and start uh, the, this Hall Call interview series off with you. And, and every book has a starting point. And we've done a lot of discussions on books here at the Hall of Fame with some of our inductees. We actually just did one a couple of weeks ago on, on uh, George Allen, where we spoke to the former governor and, uh, and his biographer. But what was the starting point on this particular book about Jerome and, and how did it ultimately materialize? Yeah, so Hope Curry was the sports information director while Jerome was at Longwood. He uh, was there from 79 to, I believe, 97, 98 area. And when Jerome, when uh, Hope retired from Longwood back in the late 90s, one of the things he wanted to do was to write the book about Jerome. So a lot of the, when you read the book, you'll probably notice a lot of references in there about what Jerome said in 1998 in an interview with Hope Curry. I think Carrie said that statement probably two dozen times. And so a lot of the information that you read in the book were quotes from the late nineties, which is really, was really valuable to Carrie when he was writing the book, because obviously Jerome was not with us during the production of the book. But we had all these quotes, and not just from Jerome, but Kevin Duckworth, um, who since passed away as well, unfortunately, who was a big part of that team back in the early 90s with, with the Trailblazers. So that's how it started. And then um, I guess during right before COVID started, um, I had inherited all of Hoke's information, all his notes, all his files, all the interviews and everything. And 
it's one of those things that's just sort of set in a corner for a while. And, and I knew that if we did started a book, it was going to be a big task, a lot of work. And anybody who's written a book knows what I'm talking about. It's not just something you throw together on your computer overnight and voila, there it is. Uh, so during COVID is when the production, we, we actually started the production and I got, um, you know, with Hoax uh, and Nancy, his wife's, um, they were the benefactors. And then I uh, found out about Carrie Eggers through some uh, people out in Portland. And then uh, Wayne Demente, who I found out about a book that he had published about the diamond in Richmond from a, a mutual friend who I'd worked with when I was in baseball. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of put the team together. Sort of like the Blues Brothers putting the team back together. And we did. And so we basically did a lot of this work during COVID. Uh, we started like in July of 2020. The book was released in 2021. And, and here we are. So a lot of my motivation for having the book completed was to help my friend and mentor, Ho Curry. It was his vision to do this for a number of reasons. It wasn't completed under his watch. So I stepped in and tried to uh, try to put it all together. Brian, your basketball is a a huge part of your family. And that's probably an understatement saying that, but I, I don't really know how else to describe it. Uh, when you met Jerome for the first time, was, was there something that stuck out to him from a stuck out to you about him from a basketball standpoint? Well, athleticism was amazing. I mean, what he could do at that level, a lot of division one schools missed out on at the time. And, and but he was as humble as, as he was a good basketball player. I mean, he never, he never took credit for anything. He, he was it on campus. You know, everybody knew who he was. I met him, you know, right when I got on campus. I mean, we ran into each other. You know, we had the same last name. I was playing tennis. Uh, he was playing basketball. And uh, our friendship started quick. I don't, he had no idea who my dad was, you know, because uh, until my dad came up to, to visit, he didn't even know my dad was an NBA referee. So the, the friendship was genuine right from the get up, get up. But I mean, what he could do not only on the basketball court, but uh, to, to uh, open the room up and make everybody feel comfortable was like nothing you've ever seen at that time. Well, and that's in the early eighties. It was crazy. I mean, it was just, he was, he liked everybody and knew everybody's name. Well, and that's in college. And one thing that that really stuck out to me in reading the book is that every step along the way, he didn't change. Now, yes, he enjoyed the finer things in life. When you reach Correct. that certain status in life where you're an NBA star, you, you have access to certain things, but it didn't seem like it changed him. And and was that something that as as he's going through life, you weren't surprised at that he was able to kind of maintain that that humble uh, nature to his personality? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, he, he had a mentor that was at the time was a, a football coach at St. Augs down in outside of Raleigh. And I would see Jerome every year because he would come every single year and spend a week with him during basketball season. And I would always have a game down there. He would always call and see when I was down there and he'd, he'd schedule his, his trip to see him. You know, he'd, he'd bring him to the games. He would hang out, you know, after the games. He never forgot where he came from and who helped him get to where he was. Because, I mean, I don't know if everybody knows, but when he got to Longwood, he wasn't mammoth like he was when he left. You know, he was he was regular size, you know, whatever regular size is. But, I mean, he, he left 6'7", 250, I guess. 
you know, when he left, I mean, he was larger than life. And and that never changed who he was. He still walked the same way. He still treated people the same way. You know, when you go back to Clarksville with him, everybody knew who he was as a college basketball player at Longwood. Now, did they know he was an NBA player? Absolutely. Bugs Island Lake doesn't get a lot of NBA players. So, um, <laughs> but he was, he, he never changed. It, it, you know, the only time that his mentality changed was when he, started to try and be an agent at the, you know, at the end of his, you know, after he'd been out for a while and it, and it was different for him. And it, I think it was uncomfortable for him mm -hmm. for a little while because, you know, he was, that's why he was player personnel guy at, at uh, or public relations guy with, with Portland. And, and uh, you know, cause he could, he could carry a room without even trying and without making everybody say or think I'm talking to Jerome Kersey, who played 16 years in the NBA. Ron, kind of following on with that personality question, Clarksville, Virginia, Farmville, Virginia, not exactly hotbeds of the universe, but they did play a role in his personality development. What role did those two places play in developing the personality that it was Jerome Kersey? Well, I think the, the key part was how he was raised. He was raised by his grandparents. Uh, they were, uh, is what we would call old school values, uh, you know, go out and pick tobacco when it was in season. Jerome knew what hard work was. And it's funny when you talk to a lot of his friends that saw him develop, uh, like Brian was saying, they said that he wasn't just strong, he was country strong. So, you know, Jerome always, you know, did a lot of work, you know, Cal talked to Cal Luther, his, his coach talked about how, what kind of, of, uh, of, of weight, um, how good in shape he was. He was always in the weight room. Um, but I, I think that, that, that those simple values carried over to when he was at Longwood. Um, he graduated from high school at like six, three. Um, and over that summer, he grew like three or four inches. And so, like Brian said, he really developed, uh, you know, into that, finally into that 6'7", 225 playing weight. But they recruited him as a guard. Um, and he showed up as basically a, a power forward or even a center at the D2 level. But, you know, Jerome was one of those players in high school. I never saw him play, and I'm basing this on what I have been told and read, like you, you have, uh, Will, um, that he was one of those guys that did everything on the court. He could handle the ball. He could obviously jump. He, his, his shot, as, as a lot of NBA people would have told you, was horrible when he got in the NBA. And he worked on that. But he was great 10 feet in. <laughs> and on the transition, he was unstoppable. I mean, we saw that at Longwood before the rest of the world saw that in the, in the NBA. Uh, so I think that those, those old school values he really brought from Clarksville to, uh, to Longwood. He had chances when we had a coaching change. He had chances to transfer. He didn't. Um, you know, back then you didn't have the portal and you, he would have had to sit out a year and all that. Um, uh, but he had the opportunity when, uh, his first coach, Ron Bash left after his freshman year to, to leave. Uh, but he wanted to be, uh, they called it a large fish in a small pond. And, and like Brian talked about his presence in a room certainly showed that. You know, you, you talk about his transition from high school to college at Longwood and Ron, this is for you again, but he wrote a letter to himself after high school what did that letter say and what was his motivation for writing that letter i don't remember exactly why what the the exact motivation was and i, I know what letter you're talking about but i i think that that a lot of people finally told jerome you've got the ability to play at the next level 
And I, I think he was trying to, to motivate himself to, to, to play, to, to do that. And, and like Brian said, he was very humble. I, you know, I don't think he really understood the level of athlete that he was until, until later on. Um, even when he went to the pit, the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament, he talked to Cal Luther, who helped him get in there, his former coach, and said, look, I'm going to be playing against guys on television like Matt Doherty and all that. And Cal basically said, Jerome, you'll eat Matt Doherty alive. Um, you know, don't worry about that. Um, so I don't remember exactly what the letter said, but but he 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 did definitely had a lot of motivation behind him. And he was, I mean, when they told him when, when he was in Portland, when he was trying to make the team there, Jack Ramsey said, look, he says, we want you to go to Europe for a year and develop and all that. And and Jerome said, I think I can make the team. And he did. Um, and a lot of that, again, was the push that Cal Luther gave him. And uh, Cal Luther was such a pivotal part of Jerome's development and then being able to get into PIT and then, um, you know, have all his eyes on him during the tryout. You, you hit on a couple of things that I, I definitely want to get to. But let's first talk about that, that Portsmouth Invitational Tournament. Uh, the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament, for those who don't know, takes place here in Hampton Roads. And it's a great springboard for seniors, graduating seniors heading into the NBA draft. But Jerome, Brian, this, this is for you. Jerome wasn't invited initially to that, to right. that tournament to, for that showcase right. to get into the draft. How did he end up finding his way into the PIT and then making the impact that he did to eventually get drafted by the Trailblazers? I think Ron hit it on the head. I mean, Cal Luther was an incredible man. Uh, I mean, he he was a father figure to Jerome at the time. And, and Cal kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And, you know, they started talking to Michael Britt and, and – uh, the Jones kid that they both played at UDC who got a lot more accolades, but Jerome was so strong and, and Cal just kept pushing and pushing. And finally Yale had to say, all right, bring him in. And uh, he got there. I, I think somebody had to back out at the last minute and they called Jerome probably because he was two about two and a half hours away and they didn't have to use another air, airline ticket to get in. And then it just springboarded him to, the draft, you know, he he uh, did did tremendous at that. He played in the PIT, then he came back uh, in '84 and was in my wedding, you know, and stuff like that. So I mean, it, it's the the stuff. He was not if he had not played in the PIT, somebody would have brought him in, and it may not have been Portland um, as a free agent for a free agent tryout, and and he would have he was determined he was going to play in the NBA. He wanted his family to be taken care of, his grandparents to be taken care of. He wanted everybody and he wanted to own Bugs on Lake basically and let everybody be able to do whatever they wanted to do. He wanted to make sure everybody else had something before he had it. And then he took care of them for, for years. And then he finally took care of himself and his family and his wife and kids and all that. And I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an unbelievable story because he got recruited as a guard and couldn't shoot. I mean, think about that. You get recruited as a guard at a D2 school with that D2 basketball at the time with Randolph Macon and UDC were loaded in our, you know, in our region. And he got drafted and couldn't shoot. But Ron Bash saw something in him. And then Ron left and Cal, Cal just magnified his abilities. 
we 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 know that he had a great NBA career, 17 years. But obviously, this being the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, we really like to to hammer home the Virginia connections. And you you talked about Longwood's place in collegiate basketball and college athletics at that time. Uh, just a, a couple little little bit little bit of history for the people who will watch this. Longwood program began in 1976 at the D3 level. He got there four years later. They moved up to D2. That was his first year. So not a traditional powerhouse. Brian, from your perspective, what did his presence do for the program overall, both basketball and just the Longwood athletics? Gave the entire athletic department energy. And it brought attention, you know, when UDC came in, you know, it was a national spotlight on two players from UDC that brought Jerome into that, basically. There were two NBA players, everybody said, and then the guys from UDC, and then they saw Jerome, and Jerome just captivated everything. The energy that he brought, I mean, he he was in tremendous shape. I mean, he could run for days. He would come to my house and say, let's go for a run, and he'd get done 30 minutes before I would. <laughs> I mean, it was just tremendous what he would would do. But the energy that he brought and the, the focus that he brought to the – Basket, men's basketball team at the time, he brought it to the whole team. And everybody that was on that team kind of thrived from that. Everybody on campus now knew, you know, we're going to the basketball game tonight and, and we're going to watch it. And National Spotlight came because I'm telling you, at that time, Division two basketball with Macon, you know, with Brian Baca and them and and then Jones and those guys, Michael Britt at UDC, it was – it was crazy. I mean, it was it was electric on that campus. Ron, kind of following on the, the same topic train there about his impact there, it, in reading the book and learning about the, the accolades that he had as a basketball player at Longwood, he seemed to save his best performances when he was going up against the best, particularly the Virginia Union School, uh, Virginia Union and Charles Oakley. What about his mentality kind of helped him take that next step when the spotlight even being a spotlight division two was at its brightest. Well, I think Jerome had two speeds off and all the way on. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, he did play. I mean, he played against Oakley. He played a guy played against Sedell three mm -hmm. um, who spent a lot of years in the NBA. He was over at West Virginia tech, which was an NAIA school at the time. And then we've talked about Earl Jones and Michael Britt, obviously, um, his last game, you talk about the spotlight, his last game, and at that time it was called Lancer Hall, which was basically a glorified high school gym that seated about 2,500. He had 27 points, 26 rebounds, nine assists, and I think three steals. He knew that was it. That was the last game he'd ever play there. So he wanted to, to make the most of it. But um, the level of, of play back then was, I think, understated. Yes, we were Division Two, but there were a lot of diamonds in the rough for you know kids that were developed early that maybe didn't have great NBA careers, but you know played in Europe or whatever, and um, and really you know set the stage for a high level of competition. But I think Jerome, I mean, if you've watched him practice, I mean, you talk to his teammates that he was like that in practice. And so the kids that would play against him in practice would get better as well. Ron Orr, um, who was a six-six center um, on the team, you know he got he got better. He ended up playing for some of the armed forces teams when he was in the army after he left Longwood, and that helped him a whole lot. And um, one thing I'd like to add too is that uh, 
Lawwood went to the Division Three Final Four the year before Jerome went there. So the school was is in the transition of going D2, but it had already sort of made big strides in establishing itself as a, a basketball power. I mean, I, went, I got there in 1980, and I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons I went there was because I could tell a lot of emphasis was being put in athletics to attract men because the school went co-ed in 76, so – so, you know, kind of taking a step back then, looking at his recruiting, you know, how how does a, a Jerome Kersey, a Kersey get overlooked by the big schools? I know that Clarksville is what it is, and the recruiting cycle is not the 24-7 thing that we see now, but how does he get overlooked by some of the bigger schools, even in the state? I think that you're looking at a kid who was 6'3". He didn't shoot like, like Brian said. He did not shoot well from the outside. Um, he, they really didn't have a place for him. I mean, nobody, I mean, who wants a six, three guard who can't shoot? Um, and, but his athleticism was, was obviously superior. And there was, I think at the last minute, I think university of Richmond expressed a little bit of interest. And that was sort of when Mo Shepfer, who was the assistant coach at the time, who did a lot of the recruiting and working with Jerome, um, wanted everybody not to, you know, they tried to shield everybody from him. You know, they didn't want anybody to find out about him. So I think it was just a, a kid who was, his body had not filled out yet. Um, he was, it was sort of a weird, you know, where do you put him? If you're a, a Maryland or which is where he, one, I understand he really wanted to go, you know, where do you put a kid like that? Um, and uh, so, you know, when you recruit division two kids, there's always a reason why they're division two. And in Jerome's case, I think it was as a guard, it was because he lacked outside shooting uh, and uh, because he uh, he was able to handle the ball and his athleticism and running up and down transition was good. But um, I, I just think it was in, you know, a small school. Certainly he did not play AAU. He didn't have travel ball back then. I think he averaged like 19.8 points per game his last year. So it's just one of those kids that fell through the cracks. Yeah. Brian, as he as he leaves Longwood, goes to the PIT, gets drafted, what were some of the skills, the 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 things that you saw that were going to translate to the NBA game? The way he went to the rim. I mean, that that's what I think that's what got him. He was not afraid. I mean, he'd go if he didn't dunk on you, he was going to try to. And he had no fear of his game. He knew his limitations and what he had to work on. His work ethic was on like nothing when he went to the nba there was there i can guarantee there was nobody there that was in better shape than he was when he got in and then he just built on his frame but he had no fear so at that time uh you know going to the rim was it you know you, you go hard and and you don't worry about if you flip over somebody and, and i think that's what got him just his ability to to uh and, and he and you know he he became a very good passer you know, why he was at Longwood because everybody would come to him and it helped him when he got there that he would involve his teammates in it. But, you know, when it, it got down to it and shot clock got down, he was going to the rim and had nothing to, was not worried about anything. Yeah. That was something that was definitely echoed multiple times uh, throughout the book. And again, the book is called overcoming Jerome Kersey, overcoming the odds uh, by Carrie Eggers and uh, Dementi publishing uh, forward by Terry Porter, one of his longtime teammates there talking a little bit about his, his transition into the NBA. So he gets to the NBA and, and Ron, you kind of, you, you mentioned it earlier, you touched on it. He goes through training camp and Dr. Jack Ramsey, the head coach of the Portland trailblazers basically tells him, go to Europe for a year or two, come back, and then we'll probably have a spot for you. 
he didn't do that. He wanted to find a spot in the NBA. What ended up getting him into the NBA as opposed to listening to the head coach saying you should probably go over to Europe? Well, I think Brian sort of hit hit it right, hit it the nail on the head. I think his work ethic uh, before he came back to training camp was incredible. I mean, you know, people have seen the old uh, movie uh, Rocky, where Rocky runs around the city of Philadelphia. And Jerome was sort of like that in Clarksville, getting in the shape. If you can imagine his Longwood intramural T-shirt on and running around. And um, I, I just think he was so determined. And uh, he, uh, you know, ran, like he always did with us, Longwood, he ran over, ran over the um, – after all the loose balls and, and rebounded, I, you know, one of the big things that got him in the, in the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament, of course, Marty Blake was the, he and Cal had a great relationship, but his, uh, his lack of fear was rebounding. Um, I think that carried over to training camp and he was one of those guys that you just say, we can't, we can't cut him. We have to keep him. I mean, look what he's done. He's made a name for himself just in training camp we, he cannot be denied, and I, I think they they waived uh, maybe Peter Verhoeven, or he was a, a kid that was like number. So Jerome got the two, number twelve spot and uh, was able to squeak in. It, it truly is an amazing story, and when you look at the seventeen years in his career, and and we're not going to go through all of all of his career, but he never made an All Star team, but he was a key contributor on the great Blazers teams that that came just so close to right. NBA titles each year, but they were always in the mix in the Western conference. And this is a Western conference that included magic's Lakers, Barkley and the Suns, Elijah one and the Rockets, Carl Malone, John Stockton, and the Blazers were one of those preeminent teams. But one of the things that really stuck out to me in reading about all of that, going through his entire career is that Kevin Duckworth, one of his teammates who, who you touched on said, Jerome Kersey is the kind of guy that can't be replaced not being an all-star, not being a, 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 a Naismith Hall of Famer, but he seemed to be the glue of that team. Does that surprise you at all, Brian, when you hear somebody like Kevin yeah. Duckworth say that about Jerome? No, and, and uh, you know, he, he Duck and, and Clyde and all those guys and TP, they were all, you know, they just gelled. I mean, it was crazy to watch, but when Jerome played, it gave him energy. You know, he started out sitting on the bench and then he'd come in, you know, down 15 with two minutes left and leave the game, you know, with their team being a plus 10, you know, on the stat line. And, and but when, when he was on the great teams, I mean, he had probably a six or seven year run with that, that team where they were that close to getting there. And he was a huge contributor to that. And we knew it, we saw it. It was just, he had to, to get to it. He believed it, but he just had to get to that point. And I think he just got around the right people that, that, that wanted him, you know, TP was huge to him and uh, it made him, made him so much better as he got going. Yeah. We, we got, a, we got time for a couple more here. And, and one of the stats that I really enjoyed reading and, you know, just being kind of a stat nerd when it comes to sports is only one player drafted lower than Jerome, who was the 46th overall pick in 1984, played more games in the NBA than Jerome did. And that was Kyle Korver, who was drafted 51st in 2003. So that just shows you that this is a guy who had kind of been overlooked go, you know, in high school, going into college and then in the NBA. And he still put together that strong 17-year career, so much so. And Ron, this, one, this next one's for you, that following his career, Brian mentioned he started to dabble in the agency world, didn't like that, but he became pretty much the face for alumni relations for the Portland Trailblazers. 
And that was a role he really seemed to relish. Why, why do you think he relished that role so much, being the alumni guy for the Blazers? Oh, we might have lost Ron for a second. Brian, I'll, I'll go ahead. No, and, uh, no, I'm here. I'm here. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't think people in Virginia understand the impact that Jerome had on the Portland community. Um, you know, we, they had, a and, and there are, there's superficial things like the big mural that they had about Jerome. I think it was advertising his shoes or something like that. Yeah. That's, but just the relationship he had with places like the boys and girls club, um, the local hospitals, Jerome uh, was not just doing it for PR reasons. It was, he did it because he wanted to, it was him. It, 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 it was an extension of what we saw at Longwood or what, the his teammates in Bluestone High School saw when he was uh when he was a youngster uh so I think that position was perfect for him because he enjoyed the Blazers he is still an icon out there even now um you know with Carrie uh Carrie sold the book and did a lot of book shows uh out on the west coast in in Oregon and you know Jerome is an easy sell I mean, the book is good, but Jerome himself, his personality, his, and, you know, again, I, I'm going to reference back to what Brian said. He could light a room up just by coming in there and with that big smile. And he was so personable. One of the things that came across in the book is that Jerome had about 60 best friends. Everybody thought that they were Jerome's best friend because that's just the way he, he interacted with people. And I think that those traits carried over into his um his public relations positions and also jerome was a mentor to the younger nba players too uh dame damian 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 lillard yeah right did i get my name right yeah, the current it. the current okay he he looked up to jerome a lot you know he came from weber state which is a d1 school but it's sort of the middle of nowhere in utah and um he had to sort of scrap and and work his way to 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 get where he uh he is now. Um, and so Jerome was not just a fit community person, but he was also a great role model for a young professional coming from a small school. It, the, the, his story is, is just really unique. Um, and just seeing the journey from Clarksville, being raised by his grandparents to Longwood, then the NBA, uh, and then ultimately to, uh, to his work after basketball. Unfortunately, he, as I mentioned earlier, he passed away in 2015 um, from complications from a blood clot. But Brian, as people read this book, as they learn more about Jerome, what is something that if, if they could take away one thing, what would you want that one thing to be? He's real. I mean, and, and respect, I think, is a huge thing. I mean, he respected everybody. Uh, even when he was 15 years in the NBA, he uh, respected the people work in construction, just like he did the millionaires that played in the league. He treated everybody the same. And I think a lot of people can take a lot out of that. I mean, we don't know what other people are going through and and he didn't care. You know, if somebody was having a bad day, he'd pick them up. He, he would, he, he just wanted everybody to feel welcomed and he's humble, but, but the, the word I always used with him was real. I mean, he was who he was and he never changed who that person was. Ron, I see you nodding vigorously. Is there anything you want to add to that? Well, I mean, I think Jerome could be summed up in a story that one of his Longwood teammates uh, told me that, uh, and he followed him out to, to Portland. Jerome would go into the luxury boxes after the games, and there'd be a lot of uh, food that would be left over. And it was good food and all, and he would 
take get his put it in his SUV and drive to some of the um, homeless people and give them the food. And that just shows so much about him. He didn't do it for the camera. That's just what, you know, this is just simple country values uh, or simple humanitarian values that this guy had and he never lost it. And I, I just, that, that just, that story just speaks so much. Yeah. There are stories like that throughout the book. Again, it's called Jerome Kersey, Overcoming the Odds. It's by Carrie Eggers from the Oregonian out in Oregon. And it's available wherever books are sold. And I'd like to thank both Ron Brown and Brian Kersey for taking the time today to really kind of give us some perspective on the life and legacy of 2008 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee Jerome Kersey. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Will. And they can get it directly from the publisher as well, uh, which is uh, Dementi, D-E-M-E-N-T-I, books.com. Wonderful. And we'll share that link when we start putting out some content from this interview. But I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in. We saw I saw a few people pop in on the stream here. Uh, but I also like to thank you if you're going to watch or listen to this post interview. Be sure to stay up to date on all things Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and the Hall Call interview series by following our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can also listen to the Hall Call podcast on Apple, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Once again, I'm Will Driscoll, the Executive Director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. I hope everybody has a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next time.